As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 54, The Three Kingdoms. In this episode, the calamity of the Hyksos invasion settles into an uneasy but brief peace, as the major powers of Avaris, Thebes, and Nubia ready themselves for war. We set the scene and meet the men and women who helped shape these three societies, and then get into the opening moves of the Egyptians' attempt to reclaim their country. In 1620 BCE, all Egypt was occupied. All? Not quite. One small city still held out against the invaders, the city of Thebes, ruled by the kings of Upper Egypt. They were the last native Egyptian rulers to withstand the power of the Hyksos, who now ruled all of Egypt's delta and much of the Nile Valley. The territory of the Thebans was secure thanks to their willingness to pay tribute to the Hyksos overlords. This bought them time and even a measure of cooperation, which helped them survive in this uncertain period. But the Hyksos were not the only threat on the borders of Egypt. South of Thebes, a new power had arisen, the power of the Nubians in a kingdom called Kerma. By the time the Hyksos showed up on the scene, the Nubians of Kerma were kind of like the Asiatics in the delta. They had been in contact with and ruled by the Egyptians for so long that they had adopted many Egyptian habits and customs. Finally, they had developed their own state independent of the Egyptians, and were ready to assert themselves. So when the Hyksos showed up in 1650, the Nubians were quick to make contact. Sometime in the early Hyksos era, the Nubians sent a delegation to Avaris. There, they concluded an agreement with the Hyksos king. The two states would allow trade with each other, and they would live side by side in peace. For the Nubians, this was probably as much about securing their own borders as it was about making any moves on the world stage. After all, if the Hyksos could conquer most of Egypt so thoroughly, it was better to have them as an ally than a potential enemy. In Kerma itself, life was dominated by a mixture of Nubian and Egyptian customs. The Nubians had their own pottery styles, but they also used hieroglyphs in government. Their tombs were partly Egyptian style and partly Nubian. Incidentally, this sort of mixed style eventually became a signature of their tombs and would last for over 2,000 years. We'll come back to that in another episode. The Kermans were sophisticated builders, constructing large fortifications in their capital and even a couple of Egyptian style temples. Today, these mud brick temples are called the Defufas, which is Arabic for 
mud brick building. We really are not imaginative with names. All of this tells us that the Nubians had achieved a complex political state, built on a combination of Egyptian habits, like hieroglyphs, and Nubian traditions. The result is kind of a hybrid kingdom, not fully separate from its past as an Egyptian vassal, but now politically independent and self-asserting. In fact, the Nubians were more than ready for international affairs. They proved this by doing something that would have been unthinkable just a century earlier. They reoccupied a series of fortresses built by the Egyptian kings during the 12th dynasty. The great fortresses of northern Nubia were immense things, designed to dominate a large expanse of territory and the River Nile. Their walls were often several metres thick and placed on outcroppings and islands to help control traffic. They had been staffed by Egyptian soldiers and overseers, and been used to control trade and gather resources from the surrounding countryside. But now, the population of these fortresses was much smaller. As the 13th dynasty had withdrawn its soldiers, most Egyptian families had left, moving back home to Egypt. Now, there were just a few small groups using the forts as homes, and none of them were soldiers. All things considered, the Nubians were very civilised about how they took the fortresses over. To the best of our knowledge, no Egyptians had to leave, and the Nubians essentially pointed an overseer, a small garrison to keep the peace, and left it at that. It was probably the most civilised occupation ever to occur here. Pretty soon, the Nubians had taken over the entire region, and begun to administer it as part of their kingdom. They began to settle in the area and integrate with the local Egyptians. We know this because cemeteries in the region show a nice mixture of Nubian and Egyptian artefacts, which usually means that the locals were living a sort of mixed culture. The local Egyptians seem to have accepted the situation. We know this because some of them carved small stelae depicting the King of Kerma in Egyptian-style regalia. These were rough carvings, not the work of royal specialists, but they conveyed enough information to tell archaeologists that the Nubians integrated with the locals relatively easily. Or at least, the locals didn't seem to mind too much. But even a peaceful occupation did not change the fact that taking over the fortresses was a declaration. Not a declaration of war, but a serious statement that Kerma was now on the international stage, and ready to assert its power. Up in Thebes, the king of Upper Egypt was not happy. The kings of Thebes held far less territory now than they should have. Where their predecessors had ruled from the Mediterranean down to Nubia, these kings owned a mere fraction of that, and it was shrinking. The Nubians were pushing northward, the Hyksos were pushing southward, and in between, the Egyptians were struggling to hold on to something, anything. Unfortunately, their first attempts to do so ended in catastrophe. The trouble centred on a town called Abydos, the ancient burial place of Egypt's first kings, and a site of sacred pilgrimage for many centuries. Abydos has been quiet in our story since the last years of the Middle Kingdom. Kings of the 12th dynasty had built magnificent tombs here, far away from their capital. But as that Middle Kingdom faded away, and the kings of Egypt became the kings of Thebes, 
Abydos had gone relatively dormant. Or so we thought, until a discovery in 2014 rather shook up the story of this era. In January 2014, archaeologists from the University of Pennsylvania discovered the tomb of a previously unknown king, a chap named Seneb Kai. Usur Ibre Seneb Kai was found buried in his tomb in the desert west of the Nile. He had been laid to rest in a wooden coffin, decorated with the extremely exaggerated title of King of Upper and Lower Egypt. His tomb was simple but beautiful, with brightly coloured wall paintings showing the king's names and titles, and female deities. Over the centuries, grave robbers had entered Senebkai's tomb and destroyed his mummy, but the forensic analysts were able to reconstruct his skeleton and discover a few things about his life. Senebkai was approximately 6 feet tall, and about 37 when he died. So we know that he lived a comfortable life with the varied and high-protein diet required to reach this height in a relatively short society. Senebkai also remained physically active right up until his death. We know that because Senebkai died in battle. Senebkai, as king, was responsible for leading troops against their foes. Whether it was against Nubians or Hyksos, we do not know but my money is on the Hyksos. The Thebans were beginning to push back against the Hyksos around 1600. Either they were beginning the opening moves in a game of reconquest, or they were simply trying to assert themselves, to show the Hyksos that they were not to be trifled with. Either way, one of these military endeavours went very badly, very quickly. Senebkai was standing in his chariot, probably in the midst of battle, when he was struck in the lower back by an axe. His enemies hit him in the back, his ankles, and his feet, incapacitating him, and then they pulled him to the ground. When the king was on the ground, the attacks continued, and he was struck no fewer than 18 times. Many of these wounds went right down to the bone, and the king was finished off by axe blows to the skull. Truly, a horrible way to go. Senebkai's death was not the last during the Second Intermediate Period, but it was a major event both in the war itself and in the history of Egypt. To date, we have not yet met a king who died in battle. Kings have been assassinated in their beds, died in hunting accidents, and fallen victim to illnesses or plagues but none have ever fallen on the battlefield. Seneb Kai would be the first, making him something of a novelty in the story so far. The death of a king in battle was significant, not just because it was a terrible loss, but because it seemed to affirm the idea that the Egyptians truly had lost divine favour. After all, what could possibly bring down an anointed king if not the punishment of the gods? This was something that Egyptians used to justify their failure against the Hyksos, the idea that the gods had abandoned them and sided with their foes. Senebkai's death, it seemed, rather confirmed their suspicions. Truly, times were dire. The Thebans' losses were catastrophic on a personal level, and for the state at large. Following Senebkai's death, the Hyksos moved further south, pushing into the Theban territories, 
until sometime around 1590 or so, they reached Thebes itself. Now, the internal chronology of this whole period is a mess. The names of the various Theban kings are elusive, and some scholars think that rulers like Seneb Kai may not have even belonged to the Theban dynasty. They suggest that Seneb Kai and his fellows at Abydos were independent rulers who built a small state between the greater Theban and Hyksos powers. But there are some pretty compelling arguments for viewing kings like Seneb Kai as Theban. After all, great Middle Kingdom rulers had built their tombs at Abydos, far away from the capital, and no one had ever called them Abydos kings. Perhaps Seneb Kai and his compatriots spent much of their reigns at Abydos, guarding the borders against Hexos aggression. With such a difficult political climate, it's not hard to imagine a king choosing to spend much of his time on the borders. Hell, later in the story, we'll meet Roman emperors who did that, and they had empires the Egyptians could not have dreamed of. Senebkai's death was, for my money, a genuine disaster for the kings of Thebes. Whether or not he was one of them, or merely their ally, he had fallen in battle against a truly powerful foe. And if his wounds are anything to go by, one who commanded very brutal soldiers. With his army swept away by the defeat, Senebkai had let the door open to Thebes, and the Hyksos went right on through. Thebes fell around 1590 BCE, and the native Egyptian dynasty, the 16th, ended. This dynasty is pretty much an enigma in the larger story of Egypt's past. There are many kings with very few records, and only one or two individuals who seem to have ruled long enough to make even a small impression. For the most part, it's a dynasty of nobodies. But the 16th dynasty was soon replaced by a new one, the 17th. Because even though the Hyksos eventually conquered all of the Theban kingdom, they did not try to rule it directly. Instead, they followed the same practice they had done in the north. They installed local princes as vassals, and had them rule on their behalf. It had worked before, it could work again. Right? The Egyptians would never let the Hyksos be accepted as the true rulers of Egypt. And it was this hatred, this non-acceptance, that kept the Egyptians going even when their city had been occupied by the enemy. The Hyksos appointed a new line of princes to govern Thebes in their name. This line would pay annual tribute and maintain peace with the Hyksos and their allies in Nubia. In return, the Thebans would be allowed to manage their own affairs, as princes in the Hyksos kingdom. But no matter how hard everyone tried, there was always bound to be a reckoning. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. 
enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. The following story comes from a papyrus written about 300 years after the event. It is generally viewed as a story derived from official royal records, composed by a scribe and then preserved until it was acquired in 1839. Quote, It once happened that the land of Egypt was in misery, for there was no lord as sole king. A day came to pass when Sekenenre was still only prince of the southern city, Thebes, Misery was in the town, for Prince Apophis was in Avaris, and the entire land paid tribute to him, delivering their taxes, and even the north brought every sort of good produce of the delta. This was the situation around 1560 BCE, about 90 years after the Hyksos invasion, and 30 years or so after Thebes fell to the invaders. The kings of Egypt were now princes, vassals within their own country. To the north, the Hyksos were in charge, and its king, King Apepi, or Apophis, was enjoying the longest period of peace and prosperity since his people took over the country. Quote, king Apophis adopted Seth as his god, and he refused to serve any god that was in the entire land except for Seth. He built a temple of eternity next to the palace, and he appeared at the break of day in order to sacrifice daily to Seth while the officials of the palace carried garlands, exactly as is practiced in the Temple of Re. End quote. The Hyksos were not religiously intolerant. They built temples to a variety of Egyptian gods, and often paired them with their own Canaanite gods. Archaeologists working at Avaris have discovered the various shrines and temples they constructed for these gods, and the overall picture seems to be one of cultural integration. The Hyksos were foreigners, they knew they were foreigners, and they did their best to blend in with the locals in religious matters. Politically though, well, that was another story. Quote, now as for King Apophis, it was his wish to send an inflammatory message to Sekenenre, the prince of the southern city. And so King Apophis had the high officials of his palace summoned, and he proposed to them that a messenger should be sent to Sekenenre with a complaint but he was unable to compose it himself. Thereupon his scribes and wise men and high officials said, O sovereign, demand that there be a withdrawal from the canal of Hippopotamuses, which lies at the east end of Thebes, because they do not let sleep come to us, either in the daytime or at night, for the noise of them is in our citizens' ears. And King Apophis answered them, saying, I shall send the prince of Thebes this command, so that we may assess the power of the god who is with him as protector. He does not rely upon any god that is in the entire land, except for Amun-Re, king of the gods. End quote. There are probably easier ways to antagonize your vassal, but nothing beats an old-fashioned insult. The king of Avaris opted to send a message to Thebes, a message complaining about the noises of hippopotami in the canals of the city. Now, the odds of any Egyptian allowing the hippopotamus to take up residence in their city is astronomically slim, 
Hippos are fast, powerful, and lethal, and the Egyptians feared them, with a healthy measure of respect as well. So King Apepi, Apophis, wasn't really complaining about hippos, was he? He was complaining about the noises being made by his southern vassal. The Prince of Thebes, of which Sir Kenanray was one, were unwilling subjects of the Hexos king. They were the last native Egyptian household to rule any part of the country, and their obedience was never more than token. They sent tribute, they did not take up arms against the Hexos, anymore, and they kept themselves. But chances are they were also arrogant. Egyptian kings throughout history had been full of the pomp and self-confidence of a country more than 2,000 years old. Sekenenre was almost certainly similar. He was the living embodiment of an ideology that went back millennia, was supposedly favoured by the gods, although the Hyksos had thrown some doubt on that one, and yet he was just a prince in a country that, by rights, should have been his. Quote, when the messenger of King Apophis reached the prince of the southern city, he was then taken into his presence. Then Sir said, Why have you been sent to the southern city? Wherefore have you come journeying here? The messenger then told him, It is King Apophis who has sent me to you in order to say, Let there be a withdrawal from the canal of Hippopotamuses, which lies at the east of the city, because they do not let sleep come to me, either in the daytime or at night for the noise of them is in Apophis's citizens' ears. Then the prince of the southern city became stupefied for so long that he became unable to render a reply. Finally, Sir said to him, Does your lord think this remark will incite my action? Then the messenger said to him, You should follow the instructions for which I have been sent. End quote. Now, the scribe is hyping things up here. We're supposed to be gasping and asking, and then what happened? It's a dramatization. Even a little bit Shakespearean, actually. The protagonist, Sir has been insulted drastically by the king of a country of which he should be the king. It's kind of like the opening to Shakespeare's Henry V. Henry sends a message to the king of France, and for a reply, receives only a set of tennis balls and a note to hear no more of you. Basically, the whole affair is a dramatized diplomatic insult. And in both stories, it's a good case for war. Kings are rather touchy, aren't they? Whether Apepi sent such a message to Sakenenray or not is irrelevant. The Thebans, no longer willing to tolerate the gross insult of being vassals in their own country, had decided to strike for war once more. It was a risky course, Earlier kings had gone against the Hyksos and died, but where Seneb Kai had failed, Sekenenre was determined to succeed. Sekenenre knew what he was doing, I suppose, but when he rebelled against Apepi, he doesn't seem to have taken into consideration one very important factor. Apepi was not alone. The Hyksos kingdom was still allied with the Kerma kingdom of Nubia. This kingdom would be Apepi's strongest ally in the war that now erupted. The Nubians were in a strong position, they ruled most of northern Sudan, and even controlled those fortresses that had been built two centuries earlier. In other words, they had strong defences and enough wealth to pose a serious threat. This threat manifested around 1560 BCE, when the Nubians attacked the Theban kingdom.
Their first stop was a small town called El Cab. Not the most important town, but it was situated south of Thebes, and any attacking force had to go past it in order to reach the capital. Unfortunately, the Nubians had not reckoned with the locals. When they attacked the town, they found the people of Al Kab, and their governor in particular, armed and ready for the challenge. The result was a disaster for the Nubians. They were utterly repulsed, and to the best of our knowledge were unable to launch another attack during this war. It was a splendid victory for the forces loyal to Thebes, and Sir could now march north, confident that his southern borders were secure. In fact, he even seems to have recruited a few Nubian soldiers along the way, suggesting that the Nubians were beaten so thoroughly that they had to sue for peace. Things were going surprisingly well. While the people of El Kab were thoroughly beating back the Nubians, Sir was readying his soldiers in Thebes and throughout the kingdom. At his fortified palace, located just north of Thebes, Sir prepared the army and the navy. The Theban army was a mixture of infantry and cavalry, comprised of horsemen and chariots. The infantry were armed with spears and shields, and rarely wore armour. They fought in ranks, supported by archers, and formed the main force of the Egyptian army. As far as we know, they were capable of siege warfare, defence, and work on an open battlefield, making them a reasonably versatile group of soldiers. But the truly elite forces of the day were the chariots and the navy, and it was the navy that would form the major part of the Egyptian offensive. This war would be conducted mainly on the Nile, as ships transported soldiers swiftly down the river to towns and harbours, where they would attack in a sort of combined arms approach, one that would prove devastatingly effective. And so it was that Sekenenre, also called Tau, or the Brave, resumed the war against the Hyksos, just 30 years after Thebes had fallen to the invaders. He was confident, he was well armed, and he was ready for a fight. The Theban army came north, past Abydos where Senebkai had fallen so many years ago. They moved further on into Middle Egypt, and eventually came face to face with their Hyksos adversaries. It is possible that Apepi himself was in attendance at the battle, but there's no certainty. Sekenen Ray, in his chariot, led the Egyptians on land. On the river, the ship captains commanded their individual vessels, ready to land sailors on the riverbank to fight alongside their brethren. This battle, sadly, did not end well for the Thebans. Somehow, the Hyksos emerged from the fray victorious. What was worse... Sekenen Ray himself was captured in the fighting. He was taken prisoner by the Hyksos, again, possibly even by Apepi himself, and brought before the Hyksos king. While he was resting on his knees, Sekenen Ray was struck, full in the face, by an axe. He fell to the ground, and then was bludgeoned to death by his foes. It was a brutal execution, intended to send a message. Mess with your proper overlord, and you pay the price. We know of the death of Sekenenre because, like Seneb Kai, we have his mummy. Unlike Seneb Kai, Sekenenre's mummy still has its skin and most of its facial features. Unfortunately, this also means we can see the full horror of his death, 
axe wounds break open the skin, and his teeth are bared in a sort of death snarl. The impression, which you can see on the podcast website and on Facebook, is one of an intensely agonising death. The death of Sir Ray Tao is a turning point in the war. As catastrophic as it is, it is part of a larger sequence of events that will instigate the Thebans to even greater fervour and resistance. When the king's body was returned to the Thebans, again as part of a message, it came into the hands of Sekenenre's wife, Ahotep, and his son, Karmosa. Together, this queen and this prince would organise a war lasting nearly ten years, a war for the ownership of Egypt, a war of liberation. <laughs>